Five, four, three, two, one. I'm John Miglosh for the Wisconsin DMA and the International Society for Strategic Marketing. A study, I always love it when I say a study. A study finds that a study finds that Americans are willing to trade privacy for monetary benefit. That is not at all. Joe Mendezi, that is not at all what the study found. <laughs> the study found that consumers are willing to give you data which doesn't affect their privacy one iota. In other words, if I tell you where I live, that's not the same as you spying on my, my cell phone and following me home at night and saying, oh, that must be where he lives since that's where he's spending many hours of the evening. <laughs> you get the difference? Okay, so if I give you my data, it's not saying I'm trading my privacy. I am giving you data. Very, very different. Okay, so... If you, uh, they will trade their email name for their welcome reward. And oftentimes, of course, we give them phony emails or emails we never check because we can. But that's the easiest one to give, so we give that a lot, right? Uh, loyalty program for ongoing rewards. Oh, uh, yeah, I have a few of those. Birth date for birthday reward. I even have a few of those. And retailer credit card for ongoing rewards. <laughs> You know, they used to do credit cards, you know, you'd walk into a store and I remember getting a two liter bottle of Coke and I remember getting a free flashlight and some headphones and I don't remember anything else, but I remember those three. And so then I like applied for a car loan or something, you know, before I got married, I think. And they, they, they turned me down. They said my credit was bad because I had too many credit cards. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And they listed off Radio Shack and Sears and all these ones that I'd gotten this little bitty prize for and uh, never canceled them, just never used them. Zero, all zero balance, but they are all still on the books. And so watch out for signing up for loyalty cards, <laughs> loyalty programs, if they have credit cards attached. Anyway, so anyway, retailers need to watch their, their data diet. For years, retailers have loaded up on customer data. Uh, and so now, the you know, yeah, yeah, the third-party cookies are being delayed, but are they really worth that much anyway? Uh, so third-party is going away, and what, what, <laughs> which customer data do I no longer need? That's what you're supposed to ask yourself. In some cases, first name, last name, or email address will fall by the wayside. Hmm. And I was trying to think if I could think of a time when I would throw away uh, geodemographic data or first and last name data. I mean, if I knew the customer moved, I'd throw, you know, I'd switch it to their new address. And But there is one example I can think of, and that was in business to business, um, we decided that we would call, I was VP of marketing for a business to business cataloger. And we decided we would start calling some of the accounts that had ordered from us in the, in the previous year and see why they hadn't ordered again. And so this was back in the days when you could use a phone and people would answer it. And what happened was, uh, people said, Oh, I was in charge of the company picnic. I'm not in charge of that this year. It's so-and-so or. I was in charge of company rewards or loyal, you know, the, um, um, you get up like a gold watch or something if you've been there 25 years. I was in charge of the employee rewards and I'm not in charge of that anymore. Or I was in charge of 
of trade show giveaways and I'm not in charge of that anymore. That was kind of the number one universal answer. And what we learned was that mailing a title in business to business was often more effective after about two years. Uh, a year or two, you could use that name. We didn't throw them away, of course. We kept them, but, you know. But after about two years, someone else was probably doing that job, and uh, the mailroom might know better than you did who to send it to. Um, so, which customer data is most relevant? And that is always a, a problem, because if you use AI and machine learning, you'll find correlations that uh, look very, very promising, but actually are spurious. There is no basis for them. They just happen to be, because the sample sets are always, there's always pressure to make the sample sizes smaller and uh, get more detailed data. And the more you do that, the more silly it gets. So, um, what kind of data is most relevant? First party data. First party cookies collected on retailers' own websites are here to stay. That's true. In the possible absence of third-party data, we expect retailers to make larger investments in first-party data to improve site conversion and retention metrics. And, of course, that's mostly where did you go, did you wander around, um, you know, and that, you know, has, has some value. I mean, unfortunately, the most important is what did they buy, right? And that isn't even on the list here. Okay, but... Um, Zero-party data. This is data which the customer shares with the retailers through surveys, quizzes, memberships, registration forms, etc. Um, North American Fishing Club asked me to do a modeling project where I could guess which kind of fish you fished for. And I said, that sounds like the dumbest project I ever heard. <laughs> I've talked myself out of more revenue in the world, you know. But anyway, they said, what do you mean? I said, well, okay, they wanted to do it by zip code. I said, I like to fish for snook down in the west coast of Florida, even though I live in Wisconsin. My neighbor lived down the end of the driveway. He likes to fish for walleyes, drives up to Canada, drives over to Lake Erie. And I got another neighbor across the lake who likes to fly down to Costa Rica and go to the west coast and fly and deep sea fish, all in the same zip code. How are you going to guess that? You know, even on my lake, some people fish for panfish, some fi people fish for, for bass. You know, there's northerns, big northerns in there. And each one is a little different technique, right? They said, well, what do you suggest? I said, here's an idea. When people sign up for your club and join it, you could ask them, which fish do you want to fish for? <clears throat> are you most like to fish for? What an idea. Sometimes it's pretty straightforward. A lot of times it is. The other problem you get into with this stuff is there's three problems with first with zero-party data. Another problem is that you ask the wrong questions inadvertently. So I told you the story last week about Amazon. They asked me what kind of books I liked. I, I was trying to put in Christian hunting books. Not, not Christian hunting books, but Christian books and hunting books. And they decided that I was a... Uh, that I would like Buddhist environmentalist books, which, you know, I'm, I'm a conservationist, but... You know, that was kind of the spiritual side of that is is not my thing. So anyway, they conflated it. And the final problem is that unless you're very, very, very diligent, like I suggested the North American Fishing Club be, you won't have much data on many people. 
you'll only have a small percentage. So when we were modeling Cabela's, they said, can we use the survey data? I said, how many people have you surveyed? Oh, they said thousands. Well, your average mailing is 5 million. Sure, use it all you want. <laughs> Do whatever you want with it, but don't throw it into the model because it's pointless. You know, anyway, you know, the, only, the only variable worth knowing is these people are willing to fill out a survey and these people aren't. And that one would have enough data to maybe do something with. Okay, so anyway, uh, second-party data is, you know, data co-ops can be very valuable in certain contexts. Like uh, four-year-old buyers, who's still buying from someone else even though they're not buying from you? Extremely, extremely valuable, right? One of the best things you can ever know. Who's buying in other categories? You might be able to get the category. But oftentimes those co-ops kind of mush stuff together. I worked with Abacus years back when they started. And, uh, you know, for example, they would just label all of Land's End apparel, even though some was luggage and some was male and some was female. And there was, you know, and categorization can change across across titles, depending on the context. So uh, in the cigar craze of the late 80s, uh, Johnson Murphy Shoes sold cigars. And they also sold fancy pens and belt buckles and some other stuff. All of that would probably have been lumped into uh, accessory items for their shoes, right? Johnson Murphy shoes. And on the other hand, that same cigar that they were selling as an accessory item, they categorized it that way, was categorized as a, you know, six and a half inch, 50 ring uh, Dominican Maduro wrapper or something you know uh thompson cigar which we also did work for um would categorize it completely different um and like most articles it sounds like they just know a little bit about the industry how to make your direct mail assets even more valuable an excellent white paper better than most i see uh it says 30 percent of consumers spent more time reading marketing or promotions delivered to their mailbox uh, 50% of retailers say that they um, they have a catalog as part of their mix. Mm, I don't know if that's true. Depends, I guess. I think you have to be a certain size to make that work. Um, and what would they? What would this? Uh, this is basically a customer data center. Uh, what we used to call a data or a customer data platform. What we used to call a database. Everybody's always renaming stuff in marketing. And um, so create more relevant segmentation within their mailing lists. Very difficult. Most CDPs only have limited categorization. And as we just pointed out in the previous article, categorization can be everything. And uh, very few systems, ours does, but very few systems, allow you multiple categorizations by, for the same item. Not necessarily what the merchant wants. You know, Oriental Trading, who had us out, <laughs> they categorized their items in, in terms of the purchasing by the material they were made out of. So metal, porcelain, plastic. Well, the consumer doesn't think of your items that way. Maybe some do, but not mostly. Mostly they're, they're thinking, I collect little elephants. You know, and if they're made of porcelain or they're made of plastic, if they're cute, they're, you know, or glass. Anyway... Uh, so you have to come up, we always, you know, we started with what the merchant wanted and then we would always add others. And an example would be um, when Baseball Express was coming out with a fast pitch softball catalog. They already had a slow pitch catalog for men, mainly men. Uh, 
uh, you know, firemen, big guys. Big guys are on a quarter barrel, which is home plate. Uh, and but they wanted to market to the to the uh, young athletic women who you know did the fast pitch. And so we looked for items that had particular gender uh, possibilities, like they had a they had a they had a, a batting helmet with a hole in the back that girls would put their ponytail through the hole uh, so that it would sit on their head nice. And they had like pink gloves and pink bats, which we figured were typically bought by girls. And uh, the rest of it was all other, you know, or not explicitly male or female. But by finding out who bought those particular items, we could target the the girls. Now, if in doubt, we left it alone and we sent them the fireman catalog because they were used to buying from that catalog. And we had a few items for girls in there. But when we when we put the girls on the cover, we figured, well, let's not send those to the firemen. They might be confused, right? So segmentation is everything, and there is very little creativity in that. And creativity can make you millions of dollars. Uh, track interactive elements of catalogs such as QR codes. I'm a big believer in that. We're working on a new product that will make this all very much easier for retailers so that we don't have to worry about pagination and space allocation quite so much. And we can dynamically allocate different merchandise mixes to different customers without having to do an independently created uh, sub or, or micro catalog. Um, measure potential customer demand for specific offerings, including spin-off catalogs. It's very difficult to make that pay. Because your cost per piece for a 24-page catalog, given the postage costs, the setup costs, etc., and usually a, a much shorter run length because you're only going to a segment of your customers, oftentimes that cost per piece is the same as your 125-page catalog. So what's the point? Right? Think about that. Oh, very, very hard. You can segment yourself silly and uh, we did that for Musician's Friend for about 18 months. We had a drummer catalog and a guitar catalog and a professional catalog and a, a beginner catalog. And, and at the end of the day, we decided to give it all up and go back to the 200-page catalog and just send everybody the same thing. It was less expensive in overall and a lot less work. So as I'm saying, this sounds like somebody that hasn't done all these things, but it sounds like a good idea. And this is the way most marketing articles go. Is my lifetime value higher for customers acquired by catalog or social? An excellent, excellent question. No, it isn't. <laughs> it's not the same. And the, it's higher but for catalog acquired. Renting lists and sending out catalogs is will get you a four times more valuable customer than the social media. Now, social media might cost one-tenth, you know, to do. So, but you have to hit it more times. So your, if your cost of acquisition is one quarter, then it might be a wash, but usually it's not. And we've run some of those numbers for you for, you know, for pay-per-click. For example, you have a 50% bounce, and only after the bounce do you start seeing some engagement, and only after the engagement do you get some kind of response, which is usually lower than your mailing list that you rented. So you're paying, let's, Amazon is around a buck for pay-per-click. And so if you have a 50% bounce, uh, it's two bucks. Well, you can do a heck of a great catalog for two bucks. Just saying. Should my new customer series include a postcard or just email? It probably 
should include a catalog if you got one. Uh, but, you know, test. Always a test. How does purchase category affect customer retention? Massively, right? Gift categories tend to not be very retentive. Um, you know, I, I, I talked to my list broker about about the uh, about the about the chocolate strawberry company that you know you gifted strawberries for Valentine's Day, and uh, they said nobody rents that list. It doesn't work for anybody because it's just a gift. It doesn't tell you anything about the recipient or the or even or the giver. So product category can be everything, right? Some products have staying power and they repeat purchase, and some don't. And how many site visits will a prospect make after receiving a catalog before purchasing and how long after? Yeah, yeah, okay. I don't know the answer. None of the catalogers I've ever worked with, as far as I know, knew that answer. I'm not sure how valuable it is. Would love to, would love to hear. But as usual, not one case study. Okay, so um, there you go. Have your customers clicked on email recently? Have they built a cart on the website? Have they, are there flags that indicate a customer may be a reactivation opportunity? You can try all that stuff. But if you spend too much playing with it, you'd be better off just mailing them. Have a great day. Like and share. Your friends will know you're smart.